series. Open your Bibles to John chapter 10. We're going to open up here with reading verses 22 through 30. And it says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Word of God. As we look here this morning, I've given us a main title for this section, A Gloomy Rejection and a Glorious Security. A Gloomy Rejection and a Glorious Security, because I think the main point that we're going to see as it fleshes out through this text is that those that reject Christ do so because they are not His sheep, and those that do believe are His sheep and are eternally Secure. So a great contrast between rejection and belief in our Lord Jesus Christ. But what we'll also see this morning and even into next week, there's a very unique shift in John's gospel here. Here in chapter 10, men chapter 10, what he's going to do is he's going to lay out for us in his gospel account the last of Jesus' public ministry. Now what we'll see going forward after this, he still will introduce and he will share the story of the, of the life and the resurrection of Lazarus. But right here, there's a unique spot where there's a bit of a culmination that John brings to all of our Lord's gospel and all of his time that he has walked here on this earth. But there's some things we need to pay notice to in that because Jesus has now been walking the earth for almost three years, ministering from Judea and into Samaria and to Caesarea Philippi, to the Gentile land on the Gerasenes, over to the Mediterranean coast in the Phoenician area there. He's been traveling all over this whole area doing what? Speaking great truth, showing great works. But here he is, and John brings us to this point here that even with all that being said, even with all that being done, they stand there in complete rejection of Christ. And not only is that true there, what I want us to make sure we pay attention to is that that same fact is true today. It's true throughout all of life and creation that no matter what happens in front of someone's face, they can still stand in rejection of Christ if yet the blinders are not removed. So this is not just a story that we read about someone else. This is true about us here ultimately today. By way of introduction, what I'd like to do as far as we dig into this text is kind of look at the first two verses that really kind of set the stage for us and give us an idea of what is happening here in this time, because there's some pretty unique details. Look at verse 22, and it says, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So some things that are important here for us as we move further 
But it starts off with they're at that time, and that just quite simply means there's a, there's a shift that's taken place here. There's actually a duration of time that has transpired since verse 21 and now verse 22. It's not the same moment of time in which this speech is actually happening. It's actually, as we'll see here play out, there's about a two-month gap. So when Jesus was talking to him about the good shepherd, the stuff we talked about and learned about last week, there's about a two-month gap of time, and that's going to really play into significance here as we move through this. So how do we know? Well, the Scripture tells us that it's the Feast of Dedication, which is also known as the Feast of Lights. It's what you and I today know as Hanukkah, right? So Hanukkah, as we know, we, at the time we celebrate it is usually around December, uh, which is standard in that time as well. It actually was an Old Testament festival that came out of the intertestamental period. Intertestamental period being the time from uh, where we last heard from Malachi and then where when we see our Lord come on the earth. This in-between time this took place. And the reason why is, and it wasn't one that had to be celebrated, but it was one that they did celebrate, was because it celebrated the Israelites' victory over the Syrian king Antiochus Epiphanes. And what he did was he was, a, he was a Syrian king that came in. His goal and his desire was to impress the Greek religion, the Greek culture on the Israelites and Hellenize the Jews. You know if you read into Acts, you hear about the Hellenistic Jews. And these were, they were ones that were impacted by his time there. But there was a priest named Matthias, and he had a son named Judas Maccabeus. Some of you may have heard of him when you look at other extra-biblical documents or historical elements. And Judas Maccabeus led a revolt in 164 B.C. that retook the temple for the Israelites. Legend has it that there was a candle that remained burning during that time in the temple. Therefore, it got the title of the Dedication of Lights or the Feast of Lights. But that's the backdrop we hear because what's interesting, too, is that Judas Maccabeus, that is more of what they were looking for in that time. Someone that was going to overturn the government around them and really someone that they would have been more interested in seeing than what Christ came to do as a servant king. But they had misunderstood the scriptures. But this takes place on the 25th day of Chislev, which is in December. And last week where we were, starting all the way back in chapter 7, was the Feast of Booths, which is celebrated in October. So we say all that to know that there's about a two-month gap of time between when Jesus last spoke in verse 21 to where he, we pick back up here in verse 22. It was winter, reinforcing the time of the year. Some theologians believe that, that the idea that he mentioned it's winter spoke, spoke to the spiritual condition of those that were around him, those who were pushing back against him. But we know that John actually has done that in his gospel to begin with. Think back to chapter 3 with Nicodemus, and it says that Nicodemus came by night, right? We know that when Nicodemus came by night, it was, a, it was him being hidden, not wanting to be known, trying to do things in secrecy. So whether or not that's what's going there at night, it reinforces the time, and Jesus is walking in the temple in, the Solomon, in Simon's, Solomon's portico, or the colonnade of Solomon, some of your shows there. And quite simply, what that was was a structure on the east side of the temple where they gathered and taught. Rabbis regularly gathered there, taught the word. Uh, Jesus would have regularly taught there. And even going into further into Acts, we will see that the early apostles did much teaching here in this area. So this is, this is the framework for where we're on. But Jesus does seem to kind of jump right back into that conversation, even though this two-month period has transpired. And we're going to see more from these hostile Jews, just as we did in that previous section because here's the truth, they, they, they want Jesus dead. 
They don't really care what he said. They don't really care what he's done. All they want is him dead, right? He's a threat to their to their way of life. And this is not what they want in any way. And I think what's key for us to look at as we move even to this next section is that their rejection is a true reflection of man's heart against God. Their rejection is a true reflection of where their heart is in position to God. But what I want us to see as we get to the end of this message and the great contrast between rejection and belief is that Christ is going to end this passage here with one of the most glorious truths of our salvation in Christ. But what I want us to look at this morning in your notes should bring you some clarity to this is we're going to discuss these two different contrasts under four different headings. Those two things between rejection and belief. And what we're going to look at really first is the Jews kind of pose this question and give them this response. And Jesus lays out something that's amazing for us right after that. But I want us to consider, actually I don't want us to consider, I want us to think with great clarity that when we look at things like rejection and belief, what we must understand, because the Bible tells us is so, is there is no neutral ground. We don't walk down this neutral ground and at some point move towards rejection or move towards belief. Rejection is the default state for those outside of Christ. But our first heading this morning, and it reads as such, those that reject Christ reject what is plain. Those that reject Christ reject what is plain. Look at it there in verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Well, the posture of these people set up for us real real well, because right there, that picture, that, that, that phrase of gather around him, that literally means to encircle or to surround. Like picture a pack of wolves heading in on their prey. Think of a, a bully in a, in a schoolyard, right, on another kid. This is not just this nice casual confrontation. This is one that speaks of this encircling that they're doing there for them. This is not a friendly, friendly gathering. Although I do believe in some ways they ask a great question because they want to speak to the reality of who is who is Christ? And I think anyone, anytime anybody asks, who is Christ? Are you Christ? What is Christ? That's a, those are great questions for us to ask. The problem is, is their motives are not pure. Because just think about this. Do you really think they have been kept in suspense? Has not Christ been uber plain throughout almost three years of ministry? of what he came to do through his words and through his works. I mean, consider that. These men know who Christ is. They know what he's done. But yet they ask the question, how long will you keep us in suspense? Tell us plainly. I believe our Christ has been extremely plain. I think some of us here today might even be in this situation right now where you're like, I need more proof. I need more evidence. Yeah, I knew someone that was a Christian, but maybe, maybe when my time comes, maybe when I'm on my deathbed, maybe, maybe this, maybe that. But I, you know, I just don't have enough information, right? I think some of us would know, would say that we were there before our, our Lord saved us. But the works of Christ are plain. 
The truth is, is we were all guilty before Christ saved us. And that's not to be denied. A plain is not the problem. Look what it says there in Ephesians 2, 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. You see, the problem is, is the sin nature is the problem. The rejection is congruent with the nature. Consider these people in this story here. How many times do you think they heard the gospel, saw the works of Christ prior to that? How many times did, did, did we hear, how many times did I myself hear the gospel before the Lord saved me? I don't know the answer to that. Wednesday night we were talking about the thief on the cross and Brother Tim brought up the reality of this idea that the, the thief waited to the very last moment of his life, the very last opportunity he had for responding to Christ. But I believe what is true that that was the very first time that he had opportunity for Christ. Why? Because God is sovereign in his work. True to their nature. Listen, no matter how plain it is, no matter how many things Christ would have told them, no matter how many, how many things Christ would have shown them, they would have still rejected. It's not based on the facts. Actually, even further, we see it's a, it's a prediction from the Old Testament. If we look to Psalm 22, which is a messianic psalm, verses 6 and 7 say, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. You see, intellect is not what saves a man. It's by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. When we look at Scripture, actually, when it talks about the intellect, Proverbs 1.7 says with great clarity that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. We must remember Rejection is the default state of the original sin that lives within man from day one. There is no neutral ground. And that really brings us to our second point here. Because what was plain, we see a shift in the text. Because it says there in our second point, our second heading this morning, it says those that reject what is plain, reject because they are not his sheep. Look back at it there in verse 25. It's so clear. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Right from Jesus' first response, this reality of rejection is echoed once again. More information was not going to change their minds. If you're here today, more information is not going to change your mind. It is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and his sovereign work in salvation that will change you. There are two things that he says here that I think we need to pay attention to. Because what he says, though, is, I told you and you do not believe, his words. And he said, the works that I do in my Father's name. So he told and he showed them. Even though he told them, they wouldn't believe even though he showed them, they wouldn't believe. Since the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he has been being extremely clear. He has been being very plain. 
There's nothing that needs to be held in suspense. All throughout his ministry, he's been showing that he is the Messiah. Actually, when we go back to John chapter 4, remember with the woman at the well, she specifically asked him and points to the fact that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. But all throughout John's gospel, all throughout Jesus' ministry, there have been what I call messianic markers of showing that he came from God, that he was the Messiah. He was the long-awaited Messiah that Old Testament had been preaching about and talking about for years and years and years. Just simply the idea of the man that was born blind and was healed of his blindness. That was specific to a Messiah's work that would be done. This section in John's account where he brings down, he comes to the end of Jesus' public ministry, really is a culmination of all of the truths that we've walked through since chapter 1. Actually, when we look to chapter 1 at the beginning of John's gospel, we see this first picture of the Messiah in verse 51, and he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Well, the Son of Man is a messianic term. It brings us back to the book of Daniel. But right from the beginning, Jesus was beginning to lay out that he was the Messiah. It's been plain. No problems at all. Actually, and we won't have time to go through it this morning, but there are 24 different statements that John makes specifically pointing that he's the Messiah. And eight different signs up until this point that he's to do so. So being plain, being clear has not been the problem. Why is all this clear evidence not enough? Why could there be people sitting here this morning, have heard this, have experienced this, have seen this, and still be in rejection? Has it not been clear? Is God's word not the greatest clarity? Look what it tells us in John 3, 19 through 21. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Here's the truth. They love their sin and they're acting in direct accordance to their very nature. Why do sinners sin? Because they love it. Why did you sin before coming to faith in Christ? Because you wanted to. We act according to our will. We act according to our nature. It's why as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can walk in any kind of Christ-likeness. Because we've been changed. They are doing exactly what they want. Jesus really begins to unpack for us this greater inability here in verse 26 for them to see and to believe. God is sovereign in salvation. Do we believe that here this morning? Do we believe that man is responsible for his sinfulness? Absolutely. And therein lies two amazing truths that the Bible does not try to reconcile for us, nor should we. Man is responsible but God is sovereign. Look there in verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. That's so clear. This is the second time that Jesus says you do not 
believe. And first it was connection to his words and his works. The second time here in connection to the fact that you are not among my sheep. Rejection happens because it defines their very nature. They are unable to respond to the words and to the works of Christ. And I believe that this statement really should have directly connected them back to the idea and the story he laid about the good shepherd. Look there in John 10. We saw this two weeks ago, verses 3 and 4. And it says, to him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them. And the sheep follow, and they know his voice. There's the big difference. Who's the owner of the sheep? You know, I know in a group this size, we could sit here in a morning like this, and many of us have family and friends and people that we desire to see walking with the Lord. Many of us have family and friends that we believe that they were walking with the Lord and are no longer walking with the Lord. But I think when we consider what our Lord has showed us here this morning in the context of that, there is great rest and great security for us in Christ because it's really simple. There's nothing that you have to do. You don't have to bring them to the perfect service. You don't have to sing them the perfect song. You don't have to do all these things. What needs to happen is that they would repent and believe in the gospel. 1 John 2.19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued in us. But they went out that they might become plain that they are not of us. Church, let me just share with you, if you've got loved ones, if you've got friends, if you've got family, if you've got coworkers, that your heart's desire is to see them saved, pray for them. Share the gospel with them because it is quite simple. What they need to do is repent and believe in the gospel. John 7, 17 says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If someone comes to our Lord Jesus Christ and desires to know who he is, they will find out. Because it says right there, if anyone's will is to do God's will, that's a promise. If someone approaches our Lord under his will, they are saved. Many times we hear the gospel preached and we wonder, why isn't this person next to me listening? Why don't they get it? It's so clear. It's so plain. I don't understand. Well, the general call of the gospel goes out at all times. But the specific call of the gospel, the effectual call of God's sheep, is what happens when the Lord does a work that only our Lord can do. Only our Lord can do. Look, if you're here this morning, as I've said many times, because our heart's desire is that if you are here this morning and you don't know our Lord, is that you would come to saving faith, is that you would see the great chasm between a high and a holy God and a sinful, wretched man, and know that it is only the finished work of the cross that bridges that gap. And that comes through you having belief in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and repenting of the sins that now you are able to realize are in rejection of Christ. The ones that you could not see before because you were not his sheep. 
but the one now you see and it hits your heart and it grips your heart like it's never done before. That's the work of an almighty God. As we move here to this third heading, Jesus flows beautifully into this next verse in verse 27. And our point here reads, those that believe in Christ believe because they are his sheep. The great contrast between rejection and unbelief. It's a clear contrast because the sheep before did not hear because they were not his. Back to John 10, 3 and 4. But verse 27 reads, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Those that are called by Christ will come. That is a promise. That's not a maybe. That's a guarantee. The effectual call of Christ will bring repentance and belief, and then it will bear fruit of a life that desires godliness and holiness. That's the work of the Almighty God. When we looked at John 6, it said that no one comes to the Father unless he first draws him in. And that word draws, if you look it up in the original language, is one of power and surety and one that we can count on. But look what Jesus opens up with there in these very, very short verse. He opens up with, my sheep. Man, those are some beautiful words, church. He says, my sheep. Those two words bring so much depth. They speak to the possessive nature of our God in relationship to our salvation. When we say the word my, that carries weight. I think, and we're going to look at this in months to come, but in chapter 17 of John, when he has his high priestly prayer, he speaks about he is so thankful what the Father has given him, and he has not lost. They are sure and secure. But let's think about five different things here that I just quickly came up with, and you can write this down, of what brings this connection of my sheep. Well, firstly, these are the sheep that Christ laid his life down for. We talked about that last week, his substitutionary work. Five times he says, I laid down my life. These are the sheep that he protects and he provides. Our women's ministry about to do a message on the Jehovah Jireh, our great provider. The sheep that will always be his. Sheep that were his from the beginning, right? He's lost none that his father has given and one here that I think speaks to us and should empower us and embolden us to walk out of these doors this morning, the sheep that are not in the fold yet. The sheep that are not in the fold yet. Guys, our Lord's church is out there. And what do they need to hear? They need to hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we be quick to evangelize those around us with this amazing, glorious truth because God's people are out there. Thank God for his people that are here, but he's not done. He's not done with his work of salvation. And then Jesus gives us three really, really clear statements that communicate this glorious truth of not only salvation, but also sanctification. Simply put, and I want you to write these down when we get to them, it's really three ways in which we should live as Christians, if you are in fact a true believer. Because remember, the contrast and the discussion here is between a sheep and his shepherd. Right? And as we make the joke regularly, yes, we are connected to sheep. But it's a beautiful connection. 
But he says first, my sheep, and he says firstly, hear my voice. Here is 428 times in the New Testament. I'm thinking it's important. When we see the word hear, I mean, think about it. When, you, when you're having a conversation with someone and you say, did you hear me? And they say, yes. And you say, what did I say? They say, I don't know. <laughs> That's not hearing. That's not hearing, right? Uh, but what we see here is, is they hear my voice. And that hear has more than just they heard and had uh, sound waves bounce off of their eardrums. Right? There's an actual connection here. So what does it mean? It means that they are responsive to his voice. If we hear and we hear correctly, then we respond accordingly. Look at John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So firstly, they hear him and they respond. Secondly, he says, and I know them. The word know there comes from the Greek word gnosko, which speaks of an intimate understanding, an intimate belief. Actually, most times in Scripture, we see it connected to the marriage relationship, right? It's not one of just, I know somebody from the standpoint of I know their name. This is, this is Christ talking about the specificity by which he knows those that are his. Pastor Ben talked about last week this idea of naming the sheep, or maybe that was the week before, right? Giving them those different names. He knows them. He knows them. But what does that mean? It means that there's a relationship. It means that there's a relationship. John 2.24 is another beautiful verse that communicates this truth. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness, for he himself knew what was in man. Our Lord knows and thank God that he does. The last part of this verse says, and they follow me. Well, why do they follow? Because they hear. What does it mean to hear? To respond. They obey his commands. Think back to the beginning of John's gospel. We see this right from the beginning when he calls his first two disciples in John's account. And it says in John 1.37, the two disciples heard him saying this, and they followed. They heard, and they followed. They heard and they followed. First John 2, 3 through 6, and says, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. You see, if we hear him and we follow him, we're obedient to his commands. Is that you here today? Have you been obedient to his commands? Have you heard him? Have you followed him? But what's beautiful, as we see here, is that not only does God begin a good work, he sees it through completion. That's what Philippians 1.6 tells us, and I think it's even so clearly communicated when we look at our Lord's sovereignty and salvation and how he moves us through our life. Romans 8, verses 28 and 30 are so beautiful, so clear, so plain, as they said earlier. And let me read it for us. And we know, once again, right, that's just something that we can hold fast to. 
For those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has glorified. We are safe and gloriously saved by our Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing for us to guess. There's nothing for us to wonder. There's great security in what Paul tells us there to the church of Rome. And it brings us perfectly into our last heading here this morning that reads, those that are Christ's sheep are eternally secure. Don't miss that. Those that are Christ's sheep are eternally secure. Remember the great contrast of rejection, this gloomy rejection, and now this glorious security that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Not only is he sovereign in our justification, he is sovereign in our glorification. There is a day that we will be with him for all eternity, and we will not have the ability to sin. Think about that, church. That is amazing to think of. When I think of what it means to go to heaven, and I know we have all of these different ideas, the thing that reigns the hardest and the loudest in my heart is that I do not no longer have to worry about sin. I don't have to worry about seeing things through sinful eyes. I don't have to worry about encountering someone else who's walking in sin. And I stand in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ because we are secure in him. Listen to our Lord closes out here in 28, 29, and 30. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. MacArthur commentating on this says, Nowhere in Scripture... Is there a stronger affirmation of the absolute eternal security of all true Christians? Jesus plainly taught that the security of the believer in salvation does not depend on human effort, but is grounded in the gracious, sovereign election, promise, and power of God, close quote. That is a biblical truth, church. That is what God's Word shows us over and over and over again, and thank God that it does. Because he is an all-powerful and almighty God. There's five things here in these last three verses that I want us to pay attention to that I believe, once again, are very, very plain. Firstly, it says that he gives. He gives. That word right there is beautiful. It reminds me of Ephesians 2, of the free gift of salvation that is given to us. You couldn't earn it and you can't lose it. You couldn't earn it, and you can't lose it. That's why it's eternally secure. Actually, if you could lose it, you would lose it. That's the truth. If I could lose it, I would absolutely lose it. Secondly, another promise here, eternal life. Let's think about that word, eternal. If something is eternal, it cannot end. Therefore, it would not be eternal. Where does eternity start? 
the moment of salvation. John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. At the moment of salvation, you are now eternally secure and your trajectory of life has changed because your nature has been changed. And now you can act in accordance to your nature. Third promise, we'll never perish. It should be obvious that something that's eternal and it can't die, therefore it should not perish. And if actually if it did, it would make Christ a liar. Christ is no liar. Christ is only truth. So he gives eternal life. He never perish, and no one will snatch us from his hand. When you look up no one in the original language, it means no one. <laughs> Think back to John 10. Talked about the thieves and the robbers that come into the sheepfold. Well, guess what? Even they can't steal the sheep, the thieves and the robbers. There's no false teacher that can steal you from your salvation. Now, I do believe they can greatly damage you, and I believe it's important that we discern who we listen to. But if you are Christ, you are secure. Not even Satan. We give Satan way too much power sometimes. Way, way too much power. Consider the story of Job. Consider Christ talking to Peter and saying that he would sift him like wheat, but yet still children of the one true God, safe and secure. And for one last category of no one, although we could go on probably for a very long time, not even yourself, not even yourself can snatch yourself from our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8 gives us great clarity on that, and we're going to look at that a little bit later. But no one can snatch us from his hand. That word snatch is this callback to where we saw with the good shepherd, and it actually speaks of a, of a wolf grabbing its prey. Right? This idea of doing something out there, you know, somebody's not paying attention, and, and they grab and go, our Lord's always on guard. Our Lord's always paying attention. He's always in the right place at the right time and has us secure. Leon Morris commenting on this says, Our continuance in earthly life depends not on our feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm grip on us. Close quote. That's good stuff. Thank God it's not relied upon our feeble grasp. And if that's not secure enough, our fifth promise, and no one will snatch us from God's hand. So before, before it was his hand. Now, no one will snatch us from God's hand. Why? Because it's true to God's character that he is omnipotent. If he's omnipotent, which means he's all-powerful, who is more powerful than God? No one. Church, rest in our Lord's work in your salvation. No one can snatch you out of his hands. And lastly, this promise is sealed with the reality that Jesus and God are unified in essence, in will, in desire, in everything else. Because verse 30 says, I and the Father are one. It's like this stamp that he puts on the end of it. I gave you all of these things with great clarity, and I'm going to seal it 
with the reality that I and my Father are one. Now, this is not teaching against the Trinity, in case any of you were worried. Actually, that word right there at the end, are one, is in the neuter version, not in the masculine version in its etymology. What it's speaking to is that the very essence of who God is, the very attributes that are applied to our Lord and our Savior are one. They have the same will. They have the same desire. They are on the same page, may we say it that way. John 6, 39 sums this up for us quite nicely, and it says, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That's a great promise, church. As I close out here, I've got some things I want to share with you that I believe will bring some clarity to the scripture here. Last week, as many of you know, uh, the Carnes family was blessed to have two more little Carnes added to us. I got an even greater truth than that, though. Many of our families here, the Duplantises, the Bradleys, so many of you have answered the call of adoption. As we were sitting in the judge's chambers, as what is how this process plays out, and he's got the decree on his desk, and he begins to talk through what it means to adopt, making sure we understand that what we're getting ourselves into, as if we didn't know after three years. But I'm thankful for his clarity. And he's talking through things, and he's explaining things to us, and we're walking through this, and uh, it was as we suspected. It was as we have been through before. But as I was sitting there, and he's got his pen about ready to make the last stroke, because when his signature hits that page, it's a done deal. It's a done deal. There's no turning back. And I don't know that this judge realized what he said and what the connection it has to our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means for us that know Christ here today. But in that moment, it rang across my heart like a gong. I really couldn't think about anything else that was being said because he said, you understand, Mr. Carnes and Mrs. Carnes, that once you adopt these children, they cannot be unadopted. They cannot be unadopted. My children are secure in my family, and that security is not resting in their ability. It has nothing to do with it. They have nothing to do with it. A judge signed the paper and said, you cannot be unadopted. It's because it's resting in a much greater power. Earthly, it's resting in the courts. It's resting in his power as a judge. It's resting in his ability to sign his name and things become right and true. But what's greater than that is what it rests in. What it rests in, just like our salvation rests in, it rests in the sovereignty of God before all times. There are two children that were born to different parents. But God is not surprised that they have been called 
acorns. In the providence of time, in his sovereignty, he knew that that would be true. So if we can apply that to such a simple thing like earthly adoption, how much greater is it with our spiritual adoption? Church, do we really believe it's anything more than a work of God? I want to read to you Romans 8, 12 through 17 that echoes this. It says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. Edwin Bloom's commentator on this says, the security of the sheep is not found in the ability of the shepherd to defend and preserve the clock. Excuse me, it is found in the ability of the shepherd to defend and preserve the, clock, the flock. Such security does not depend on the ability of the frail sheep. Close quote. So what do we walk away with here this morning when we come against glorious truths in this text? Well, I think one thing we must remember is there is no neutral ground. If you're here this morning and you say, I'm going to decide one day, I'm going to wait for it to be clear, I'm going to wait for it to be plain, my exhortation to you this morning is to repent and believe in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Scripture says that those that come to Christ according to His will will be saved. Rejection is real, but the response is simple. Mark 1.15, and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. We must see sin the way God sees sin. We must see sin in a way that's different than we do now in order for there to be salvation. But for those of us here that have been gloriously saved, for those of us here that are eternally secure in our Lord Jesus Christ, I've got three things that I want you to think through. Because I think even in our salvation, there are things that we can get nervous about. There's things that we can be concerned about. There's all these different things that we, that we worry about with regards to our salvation. But I think Scripture has given us such surety, has given us such clarity, has brought us to a place that we can truly rest in God's sovereignty. And the first one is, is you don't have to and you can't keep getting saved over and over. It's once for all. Justification is the time in which Christ positionally places us in his name once and for all. Once and for all. You don't fall from grace. Guys, we are still impacted by sin. There's no excuse for it. It cannot define how we walk out our lives as believers. But sin is something that we have to deal with on this side of heaven. Right? John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. 
That's the truth of the life of a believer. Sin is real. You don't fall from it because he has us tight in his hand. You can't fall from being tightly held. And maybe you feel like you've strayed from the pack. You got loose out of the sheepfold. Repent. Salvation started with repentance, and the life of a believer continues in repentance every time that we dishonor our Lord. Repent. And it really is a simple response. And Romans 8, I think, is where we're going to close because it brings it to us beautifully. This is the continuation of this part that we read earlier. But pick it up in verse 38, it says, For I am sure. Right, that right there is key. For I am sure. That neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. So once again, if that list wasn't good enough, Paul gives us with great clarity, nothing else in all creation, which is everything, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Do you believe that to be true, church? Do you love those words?